Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the definitive developers podcast in breezy, brisk downtown Manhattan. I'm your host, Michael Nunez. My co-host today, Dave Anderson. And the producer, William Jeffries. And today we'll be talking about Ted Deck, when to pay it off versus when to rack it up. Dave, would you like to elaborate on what is tech debt to the audience? Yeah, sure. So tech debt is basically the result of a trade-off that you make when you're writing code. There are best practices you want to follow. You want to have great code coverage. Um, you want to have you know, follow the right patterns for your code, make sure the complexity is not too hard to understand uh, for other people who come through. But sometimes you need to get a feature out of door and you need to leave some of that behind and you can't clean up completely after yourself. So that's tech debt. Right. Just like residual code that needs to be revised and looked over later on. But right at the moment, you want to get this feature out. William, when do you make the call to actually work off tech debt versus when to actually apply tech debt to your code base and then revisit it at a later time? So I've seen a debate at companies in the past between making paying down tech debt part of everyday life. Like when you do a story, you pay down tech debt. That's just a given. Uh, versus separating tech debt pay down out and making that a different ticket that lives in a different place that gets pulled in a certain amount of the time. And I think that there's a role for both approaches. I mean, like everything in tech, there are trade-offs. Right. I think if you have a relatively healthy code base, you should do tech debt as part of every story. Every time you're touching code, you should try and leave it better than you found it. If you have a lot of tech debt, though, and you really need to pay it down, then supplementing that with entire stories that are just for paying down tech debt is really smart. I don't think that it ever makes sense to ban people from paying down tech debt while they're doing regular work, though. There's a temptation to do that because sometimes paying down tech debt can turn into a ton of work. Yeah. Uh, and you have to be able to hold yourself back when you're tempted to refactor the entire class, which touches like eight other classes, because that is going to result in scope creep and then you'll never get it through code review and it's just going to be a mess. But mm. still leaving things better than they were when you found them, as long as you stay within reasonable bounds, developer discretion, of course, I think you'll you'll have a healthier code base in the long run. Yeah, I like that philosophy of being disciplined to work on things as you see them and having a team that kind of agrees upon like, hey, like this is a reasonable change to make and this is an improvement overall in the code base. But, you know, having some commitment from the stakeholders behind that is sometimes hard to get and you have to build the case. And sometimes I guess having the stories and tickets kind of is like a physical artifact that you can point to and wave at them and be like, hey, these are the sacrifices that we made in order to deliver. And, uh, you know, we need to prioritize this as well. Yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword, though, because then if the product owner gets the impression that you only ever do tech debt when there's a tech debt approved story, then you can start to get heat for doing tech debt as part of your regular job. And really, your product owner doesn't need to know or care about what you do in order to deliver high-quality code. Like, that's an implementation detail. As an implementation detail, you chose to do some refactoring here because it made the work easier, it made the code base better, and it was the right thing to do for the team. Right. I guess ideally you'd want to build a certain amount of slack into your sprint so that you have a comfortable amount of working time in order to 
decide which trade-offs you want to make and really work on the tech debt that is most important in the moment. How do you guys record whether something needs to be revised or refactored? And I have an answer of what not to do. Please stop leaving to-dos all over the code. <laughs> I think that's something that uh, I, I see often. There was uh, someone that I worked with before who mentioned, if you're going to write a to-do, then you should just do it. Like, like, just knock it out. If you're going to at least write the to-do, just do it. Um, is there any <laughs> other way you can record, like, when this should be done at a later time? Like, do you guys use uh, Trello or do you just write a new story to do it later? How does that work um, in clients that you guys have been on or the teams that you guys have been on? Uh, I think sometimes we have enough slack in the sprint and we can have a discussion really quickly and discuss the trade-offs. Like, hey, if we replace this custom rolled implementation with a gem that's just prepackaged and does everything we need, then we'll get these benefits in the long run. Uh, is it worth it to do that or should we just live with this? And you know, if we if you have that slack, then you can kind of work that in. But if you don't, then the tickets will get created and get backlogged. One thing I see a lot of is an elephant graveyard. You know, people create a separate Trello board or a separate, you know, Jira project or whatever. Right. And they just put all of the tech debt stories that like may or may not ever get done there. And it just turns into that right. one part of the kingdom that the light never touches. <laughs> yeah. Nobody does those stories. And the, the backlog just grows and grows and grows. And you end up with this massive work in progress that it's just inventory that stacks up and never gets paid down. Simba, that elephant graveyard, you must never go there. And like, it's just like that <laughs> whole thing. Just don't, and you sometimes forget to even open up that Trello board to then pick up those stories. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've been at clients that have like this Trello board like that. And then other places that just actually implement them. So you have to build this feature now and you realize that it may bring tech debt to your code base. What do you get in exchange for actually cutting that corner? That's a good question. I think the obvious answer there is you get to ship the feature faster, but sometimes there are other reasons why taking tech debt on is a good idea. So like one example would be if you will gain more information about how to do the refactor better if you wait. So I think sometimes when people dive into a refactor, they do it because they see a code smell, not because they see a solution to the code smell. And so you get people, particularly with duplication, People will try and dry things up just because they want it to be dry, not because they've realized what the problem is with the abstraction that they're currently working with. Mm. And so you end up with a dried out code smell rather than an improved code base. Right. Or you could, instead of doing like just the minimum needed to get to the feature, you could over-engineer it a lot. You could add more classes, you could add more things to separate it out and make it really nice code, but then maybe it's not exactly what you need. And then you're kind of stuck building off of this. Yeah. Whenever I hear people say like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to make the code more extensible. That's always a red flag to me. Like, oh, this this sounds like this might be over-architecting. Sometimes if you just leave the code smell where it is, the refactor will be clearer and easier later. Like maybe when that feature is done, it'll be a lot more obvious why the class that you've chosen is full of all these complicated methods because you'll realize, well, actually, there's another class hidden inside there or the whole thing is based around the wrong data structure. Right, yeah, I've fully worked on stories where like 
you start off and you're like, okay, I'm going to make the best possible thing. It's going to be great. All these different classes. Like I have an idea for how everything's going to work. And then you take a step back and you realize, actually, I'm going to do something that's like a little bit questionable, but it's going to get me there so much quicker. And, you know, I'll be able to delete all of this code that I worked on. Like instead of getting things done in like a hundred lines of code, you get it done in 10 lines of code. And then you get more information about what the other 80 lines or 90 lines should look like in the future. Yeah, there's a Sandy Metz quote, duplication is cheaper than the wrong abstraction. And I think that applies to tech debt in general. Like don't refactor unless you have a good refactor that's really going to make it better. So that's another reason why you would take on tech debt. So as consultants, we're constantly bouncing back and forth to different code bases and whatnot in different projects. Do you find it uh, more useful when learning a code base to find code smells and then refactor them? Or do you want to gain more context on the code base before actually stepping in to refactor any of the code smells you now see? I find having some level of context is definitely important because when you first look at a new code base, you may not be aware of all the trade-offs that they made. And you may think about like, oh, well, if you do it in this way, then it would be better. But then you change things so that it's better there, but then you run up against something else. And then you have to keep on going out and out and out. And then before you know it, you need to refactor like yeah. everything. And you know, you, you need to bound those things so that you're working on something that's focused. You know, once you start working outside that bound, then that's kind of a red flag. Yeah, I think it depends on the level of test coverage. Like if you have really good test coverage and you want to try and refactor a thing in order to help learn the code base, then that's great because you have that wall of green at your back to keep you safe. But if there isn't good test coverage, then your refactor might break something and you might have no idea. Like like Dave was saying, a lot of times there are reasons why people made those ugly trade-offs. Right. So um, a question that I have, I mean, I have an answer, but I want to hear what you guys think. If you had to give 100% for the work week, let's say your average velocity is 20 points every two weeks. How many of those points do you think should be vested into paying down tech debt? 20 points. <laughs> all 20 <laughs> down boom done tech debt every yeah, day tech debt all the time <laughs> um i think if i had to choose a number maybe like uh five points should be sought out to refactor some code and then the other 15 could be done for new features that businesses require i just think like 25 percent is a decent number to ensure that like on a iteration iteration basis you're trying not to introduce that much tech debt as you're doing the other 75%. But mm -hmm. I mean, there will be a time where you have to spend all 20 points to pay down the tech debt. Yeah, that feels good. Uh, William, what are your thoughts? Uh, do you have a number in mind? or You can think of a team's capacity as being divided into different areas, like bugs, there's features, and there's tech debt. And if you imagine each one of those as a knob that you can play with, you can crank up the tech debt, uh, but you're going to have to turn down something else to get there, right? If you want to crank up features and really do a big push, you're going to have to turn down the other ones, mm -hmm. right? So I would say for a healthy team that's got a average level of tech debt, then 25% sounds pretty reasonable. Right. If you just did a massive push because there was a launch and there was a actual like marketing date because they'd created press releases and those are scheduled to go out and you really have to hit that date, 
then I think zero points of tech debt is totally fine. Right. You know, but there has to be the understanding that after you hit that date, you're going to have to crank that tech debt up really high. Yeah. And that means that like features are going to slow down a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you got to pull out 20 points down. Like, like Dave, <laughs> exactly. you just got to throw them all yeah. down, pay it down. <laughs> yeah. And you just don't want to make sure if you recruit that much technical debt, you don't want that lingering in your code because the more tech that you have, the more difficult it gets to maintain that code. And it just gets difficult for all the developers around who have to make a change, but then be afraid that you may introduce a new bug into production. Like um, just paying it down throughout time definitely helps out in the end. Yeah. Like, is it peacetime or is it wartime? Right. If your company is about to go under, man, no more tech debt. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Guns are butter. Yeah. (laughs) Guns are butter. (laughs) Exactly. There have been cases where it could be difficult to sell the idea of taking down technical debt with upper management or, you know, investors who have, you know, a say in the product. Are there ways that us as developers can share with people who have invested in the product that tech debt is important and there are times where we have to slow down on the features to pay this tech debt down? Because I imagine as an investor, they want new features to come out and they want them to be awesome and come out as fast as possible. But, you know, they may overlook the idea of maintaining the code because we should be putting out features. How do you sit down and, you know, speak to uh, someone from upper management to mention, hey, we need to, you know, it's wartime. We have to start paying down debt. And how does that conversation go? I like to bring it back to the money analogy because usually stakeholders are very familiar with that, which is, I think, why it's such a popular metaphor. I think if you leverage actual problems in the code base, like there was an outage, that's a really effective way of communicating to people the the long-term value. You can say that outage is a result of the tech debt that we accumulated months ago. Right. And if you want to avoid future issues like that, maybe it's a bug that was really high profile, or maybe it was a security Mm -hmm. breach. Those are all things you can point to and say, hey, this is a result of tech debt that we accumulated a long time ago. And these things just get worse until you address them. We need to make a financial investment. Right into our product because we want to make a long-term future for this company. Yeah, I like that. I think that's a good justification for the tech debt metaphor too because I've seen other names for this kind of thing like entropy, which I really like because I love physics and I'm a nerd. (laughs) But if you're a business person, then tech debt, like it has weight to it. Like that's something you're paying interest on, like we've been saying. It's something that is going to cost you money in the long run. It's not a good financial decision, whereas entropy just sounds like some fi- sci-fi stuff. Like <laughs> <laughs> Entropy won't drive you bankrupt. Yeah. Debt will. Debt will. But entropy will end the universe eventually. This is true. Mm. Yeah, it's dark. <laughs> it just went down that road. It will end the universe. So, pay down your tech debt. That's, that's, that's what I got. Yeah, I think that's a good wrap up. Yeah. Um, you got any teaching learns today? Yeah. Recently, I've been doing a lot of uh, front end work and we've been doing a lot of CSS. And I introduced to someone the uh, methodology called BEM. So BEM stands for Block Element Modifier. And it's a methodology that's used where you style your CSS naming convention depending on the block that you're currently working in. So if you have like, let's say you have a menu 
the entire block is the menu. Um, if you want to style one of the menu items, you just use menu underscore underscore items. And then there you can style the element within the block menu mm. and the element being menu items. So you have the block as menu element as menu items. And then you can also style other things within the element that we call modifier. So like, let's say one of the menu items is disabled. Mm -hmm. Then you can write the block menu underscore underscore items dash dash disabled. And then you could style it however you want. But that way it's really nice because you can wrap your CSS in these components like menu and you have text field and all sorts of other components in your front-end code base, mm -hmm. your CSS is written in a way where it won't overwrite because you're separating it by what these things are. So is that just a mental way to organize different CSS styles? Or is that actually something that is part of the CSS standard? Yeah, it's a mental a mental way. It's like a methodology that you follow okay. and you implement in your code base. Cool. You know, you might have to have a readme and depending on how the company does it. There are many different methodologies. The one that I'm familiar with as well is called Smacks. is M-A-C-S-S. Not like the <laughs> cereal. But um, when I first heard that, I actually was referring, I thought it was like, wait, Smacks? I, that cereal is amazing. And it comes with that, <laughs> comes with that weird tinfoil. Like, I don't know why it does, but it's right. delicious. That frog. Man. Yeah, exactly. But uh, Smacks is one of the many uh, different CSS methodologies. And the client that I'm on has adopted BEM. Mm -hmm. And I've been using it ever since. And I think that it's just a very interesting way to write CSS. Because if you write them correctly and you lay out your website as like these elements or these components, especially in React with these components, um, you're less likely to stomp over other components unless they have the same name, which by then it's really weird you would do that in the first place. Right. It sounds like it's a lot easier to reason about. Yeah. Uh, I would definitely check it out. Google uh, BEM CSS. I think the website is getbem.com. It's pretty, pretty dope. I would suggest everyone to start writing the CSS whenever they have to. I understand CSS could be painful for some developers, myself included, but BEM makes the, at least the thinking, you know, object-oriented related with CSS a little bit better. Cool. BEM and Smax. We'll link that in the show notes. Awesome. I'd like to thank my co-hosts. Dave, thank you so much. William, thanks for stopping by. And I'd like to thank our listeners. Feel free to hit us up on Twitter. It's Radio Free Rabbit at twitter.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>